for all the saints. It is a stirring tune. It has such an emphasis of glory going unto God. And beyond that, it highlights the fact that we are all part of something far larger than ourselves. I've been preaching each time I get the opportunity to enter into this pulpit through the book of Ephesians. And where we left off last time I preached was in the middle of chapter 3. And Paul is highlighting this very fact that in the church, people from radically different backgrounds, people who are at enmity with one another, are brought together. Jews and Gentiles brought together, no longer at enmity with one another because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in their midst. They are now fellow heirs, members of one family. And so we pick up in Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We pray that as it is preached this morning, that by your spirit in our hearts and minds, we might comprehend what you would be teaching us. That you would draw us closer to yourself and closer to one another so that we might experience the fellowship that you desire us to have with you and with one another. That we might love you and love one another with the love of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all long for power in various different ways, whether we're a politician longing to be elected or an athlete taking steroids, there's various ways that we might long for power. We like power because we like to be in charge and we like to accomplish things for ourselves. We like honor and recognition. And power affords all three of these things to us. We all want power. But part of our desire for power, I think, is the fact that we know that we lack it. We know that we do not have enough strength. We are not strong 
enough. And I think part of that is because we look for power in the wrong places. We plug into the wrong source. We seek the wrong power. The message of the Bible, specifically in this passage this morning, is that there is power in love. Paul prays for the church to be strengthened, but he doesn't just pray for some strength abstracted from from the power of God. He doesn't just pray for strength for their own designs and desires. He prays a prayer that could be summed up in the following three points. He prays that they would be strengthened under God's lordship, by God's power, and for God's glory. First of all, when I say under God's lordship, what am I saying? We, in our culture, kind of don't really understand the idea of a lord. We've gotten away from that. But what I simply mean is this. He's in charge, and you are not. He is our sovereign. And as a sovereign, once we recognize that God truly is sovereign over all things, it does a couple things for us. First of all, recognizing his sovereignty places us in a position of humility before him. It changes our attitude because too often I want to set my own agenda. I want to do what I want to do. But when I recognize God's sovereignty, I realize that he is in charge. We see pictures of God's sovereignty here in this passage, starting in verse 14, where Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees. He is bending his knee in prayer before God. We understand this idea of bowing before somebody, being an act of homage and an act of submitting oneself to them. We normally think of this idea of bowing our knees in prayer as not being that big of a deal, but actually in the context of a first century Jew, prayer would normally be offered in a standing position. So why does Paul say he is kneeling here? Well, to kneel in prayer was reserved for acts of the most extreme passion, the deepest emotion, the most extreme acts of homage. It would be reserved for such instances as Second Chronicles 6, where Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, kneels before God. And so we see Paul here kneeling for a very similar reason. We, we see him say, for this reason... I bow. What's the reason? Normally, if we say for this reason, we would look to what preceded that immediately. But if you'll remember, last time we talked about how in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, and then he goes off on kind of a, a rabbit trail. He starts talking about something else. Now in verse 14, he says, for this reason, I, dot, dot, dot. And so what he's doing is he's kind of picking up where he originally was in verse 1. So if we want to understand what this reason is of which he speaks, we need to start at verse 1 and go backwards. And what happens is, as we look at the end of chapter 2, we see that Paul is speaking about the fact that Jews and Gentiles, those who were at enmity with one another, are now being built together into a common temple, 
a building, a house for God. And as the temple of God, they exist together, fitted together, working together toward the same goal, rooted in the same foundation. And so what Paul is doing here is he bends his knee in prayer, is the exact same thing that Solomon did. He is giving glory to God for the temple of God. We see a second example of Paul's submission to his sovereign. When he says to whom he's bending his knee, he says, I bow my knee to the Father. Father is a term of intimacy for sure. Because if one is our father, we are family. We are related to him. If my son wants to crawl up in my lap and give me a hug to talk with me, he has freedom to do that. Remember the famous picture of John Kennedy Jr. in the White House Oval Office underneath his father's desk playing if I tried to go into the Oval Office and get under the desk, you can bet that I would very quickly be escorted out. <laughs> but John Kennedy Jr. was able to do that. Why? Because he was strong and powerful? No. Because he was smart and wise? No. It's because the desk was his father's. He had a relationship with his father that afforded him access to his father. And so Paul uses this term of intimacy here with God, but it's not just a term of intimacy with God, because if God is my father, and God is your father, and God is your father, then that means that we have intimacy with each other as well, because we are of the same family. We are of the same father. And so there is an intimacy between us. It's not just an intimate family term, though it is also a hierarchical term. If God is the Father, He is the one in charge. And so we submit to Him. We see this a little bit more in the part that follows here in verse 15 from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. The idea of naming somebody in the Bible is giving them their identity, it is saying who they are. And it is a, a source of authority over them. You are naming them is to say that you are an authority over them. And so if God is the one who names, he is the one in authority. And finally, he says, according to the riches of his glory. This idea of riches is, is a phrase that Paul's used throughout Ephesians. In one, chapter 1, verse 7, he speaks of the riches of of his grace. Again in chapter 2 verse 7, the riches of his grace. And so now when he talks about the riches of his glory here, he is talking about the riches of his grace. His glorious, glorious grace. And so as Paul realizes the grace of God, he realizes that his status is of nothing but grace. God has granted it to him as a gift. It is nothing he has earned. But the fact that it is a gift from God helps him to realize God's authority over him, his place under God. Recognizing God's sovereignty assures us of another thing, though. It assures us that he can get the job done. 
since he is sovereign over not just us, but over everything, we know we can have confidence in his power. And that's important because of point two that he, Paul is praying that we would be strengthened by God's power. Now, which power is this? He says in verse 16 that he may grant you to be strengthened with power. This theme of power shows up also throughout Ephesians. And the power of which he is speaking is the power that he also speaks of in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, where he speaks of the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. This power that Paul wants us to be strengthened with is no less than the resurrecting power of God. He wants us to be filled with this power. He wants us to not plug into artificial power sources, but to plug into the power source of the resurrecting power of God. A couple weeks ago, we were sitting in our living room watching the television show, and all of a sudden our, our sump pump kicked on, and as it kicked on, all the lights in the house dimmed. And then when it went off, they brightened up again. And a couple of moments later, Erin went and she put something in the microwave, and when she turned it on, the lights dimmed. And then another of the appliances kicked on, and each time an appliance kicked on, the lights dimmed, and that's a problem. We ended up calling consumers. They came out and looked at it the next day, and they discovered what the problem was, was, was outside of our house, between our house and the power source, there was a splice that was coming undone. It was still barely there, so we still had power, but it, it wasn't as connected as it was supposed to be. We have a connection to the power source of God, and it is the Holy Spirit who lives in us. That's why Paul says in verse 16 that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. This Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit who comforts us and who convicts us. And through both comforting us and convicts us, he strengthens us. Finley Peter Dunn was a newspaper man, a humorist and an author in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, he once said, the business of a newspaper is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. The same could rightly be said of the Holy Spirit. That his job is to comfort the afflicted when we are facing trials, when we are facing difficulties, when we are mourning and grieving and hurting the Holy Spirit comforts us. He is the great comforter sent by God for that very purpose. But that is not the only purpose. He also afflicts us when we are comfortable. He convicts us of our sin. He convicts us of our complacency. He convicts us when we are becoming stale in our faith, not willing to trust God to reach out, to take chances for him. He convicts us. Paul goes on to say in verse 17, 
that he wants us to be strengthened through this spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The idea is taking up a permanent residence, not that Christ is going to come visit and on his way to somewhere else stop by for a while, not that he's going to come for the winter like we might run off to Florida until the weather warms up a little bit, but that he is going to stake out permanent residence and he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is a permanent residence. And with confidence in that fact, we know that we can be, as Paul says in verse 17, rooted and grounded in love. This double metaphor, being rooted and grounded, it's saying the same thing. It's a plant's roots or a building's grounding, its foundation are both found in the ground And what they function to do is to stabilize and to strengthen and to hold up the plant or the building. And so that's what God is saying here he wants to happen. He wants us to be strengthened and stabilized and held up by the love of God shown to us in Christ and the fact that he is with us and will never leave us nor forsake us, no matter what we do. It's not the kind of relationship we have where somebody does something wrong to us and we say, well, we're done with them. It's not the kind of thing where Christ says, I will be with you as long as you do this for me. No, he will never leave us nor forsake us. And this is the kind of love that we need to be grounded in ourselves. And it is truly unfathomable to us. We can't imagine that kind of love because we don't normally experience nor express that kind of love. And so Paul prays that we may have strength to comprehend this love. Not just that God would express it, not just that we would receive it, but that we would understand it and incorporate it into our own lives, showing it to others. Because this is not just something we do on our own. He wants us to comprehend this love with all the saints. It's not just about Jesus and me. In America, we have an epidemic of individualism. We tend to think of our faith in that way too. It's about Jesus and me. But that's not the biblical faith. Eugene Peterson puts it, he says, we're not sectarians related only to a small coterie of people who live and think and pray like me. Instead, we are part of a congregation centuries deep and continents wide. There are people who don't look like us, who don't act like us, who don't behave like us, who don't worship like us, and yet they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we do not have the option of not having a relationship with them. We are bound together by the fatherhood of God. And Paul wants us to know within the context of this transcontinental congregation that even in our relationships with one another, he wants us to know what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Paul is speaking here to Jews and Gentiles who once lived at enmity with one another. And he is telling them that to continue to live at enmity with one another is not an option. 
To do so, in fact, is to make a lie of the gospel. For if they live at enmity with one another, they are proclaiming by their very actions that the gospel is not true. My brothers and sisters, when we live at enmity with one another, we do the very same thing. So Paul prays, asking no less than that we may be filled with all the fullness of God because that is what it's going to take. I know that I can't do it. I can't create peace amongst people and myself. It is going to need to be God that does it. But perhaps we think, can God really do that? Can God really accomplish that. I've got some relationships that are really broken, that are really fractured, and it's hard for me to imagine those being put back together. I can't even imagine it. Can God really do that? Well, Paul tells us in verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. He says God is able. The Greek word there is dunamis. We get our word dynamite from that. We could translate it to him who is powerful to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or even think. His ways are higher than our ways. So wouldn't we expect that he would be able to know what we need even better than we know and to know that he can accomplish those things even when we can't understand how he might possibly accomplish them. And here's the amazing thing. He says, according to the power that is at work within us this very same power by which God created all things this very same power by which God raised Jesus Christ from the dead this very same power that transfers us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light this very same power that will one day transform this broken and fallen world into a renewed and perfect creation it is by this power at work in us us that Paul asks God to strengthen us and it's amazing he says this power at work within us within us isn't it amazing that the way by which God chooses to normally work is through us He doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes. He spoke the whole universe into existence by the power of his word. And yet he chooses to work through the church. He chooses to work through the church. What a blessing it is for us to be invited into this drama, to be used by God in this way. But what a responsibility it is too. What a responsibility. 
course, we're not under ourselves and we're not by ourselves. We're also not for ourselves. Paul prays that we would be strengthened for God's glory. The purpose of the church is to glorify God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, where it all begins. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So Paul says, to him be glory in the church. We hope that he is glorified here this morning in our Sunday worship. We sing the Gloria Patri, glory to the Father. But that's not the only way that he is glorified in the church. He is also glorified in our hearts and minds interacting with the word preached. He is also glorified if we sing out with passion to him. And sometimes I wonder, when I hear our church singing, I say, does that sound as passionate as it ought to be? Is it the kind of exaltation that I see here from Paul? Or are we just going through the motions? How passionate are we about our worship? A few weeks back, we held a congregational meeting. 400 people showed up for it. Seven days later, we held worship services and 300 people showed up. We were passionate about the reason we showed up on that Sunday afternoon for a congregational meeting. Our hearts were filled with passion, no matter what we thought about the issue at hand. And it motivated us to be here and to speak passionately and to respond passionately and to act passionately. Then 25% of us didn't show up the next Sunday to worship. I can only assume that's because we're nowhere near as passionate about our worship as we were about that meeting. Now perhaps this is the wrong crowd for me to be saying that to because you, of course, are all here. (laughs) But we need to remember to be passionate about our worship of God. We need to be glorifying him in our worship, but we also need to glorify him in our daily living, especially in the context of our relationships with one another. He speaks about there being glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus. He says, and in Christ Jesus, because the church, we are told in chapter 1, is the very body of Christ. We represent him. We are the hands and feet by which he does his work most commonly. But it goes beyond this. His righteousness is ours. His inheritance is ours. His position is ours. His identity is ours. And so too his love ought to be ours. His love is a costly love. It is a sacrificial love, a love that is patient and kind, a love that does not insist on its own way, a love that bears and endures all things. In short, it is this love that is inspired and empowered and motivated by Christ. This is the kind of love that we need to show one another. As he forgave us, 
we must also forgive one another. And I dare say, if I am unable to forgive my brother in Christ, then I should legitimately question whether or not I have ever experienced the forgiveness of Christ myself. That's a strong statement. But I believe it is true. For whatever injury I have had inflicted upon me, it is nothing compared to the injury that I have inflicted upon Christ. And whatever betrayal I have experienced at the hands of others, it is nothing compared to the betrayal that I have committed against Christ. And whatever sacrifice of love I am being called upon to make, it is nothing compared to the sacrifice of love that Christ made on my behalf. We need to daily die to ourselves. And you might say, Pete, that that sounds kind of hard. And I tell you, it's not hard. It's impossible. It's impossible. By our own strength, by our own power, we cannot do this. Not on our best day and not in a million years. But there is a power at work within us that is able, that can do this. It is a power that specializes at doing the impossible. It is the very same power that raised Christ from the dead. So if you have dead and dying relationships, it can raise them too. And if you have a faith that you feel like is dying, it too can be resurrected by the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. I had a friend when I worked at Enterprise, rent a car before I went to seminary. And he, he came up for a number of promotions. He had opportunity to become a, a branch manager. And, and he told his boss, his area manager, that he wanted to be considered for this promotion. And, and what would have happened is if he had gotten it, he would have moved to a different area. And uh, he ended up not getting it. And then another promotion, another promotion. He, he ended up, after a while, wondering why he kept getting passed over for these promotions. So he went and talked to another friend of his who he used to work with that had kind of moved up the ladder ahead of him and asked him, he said, why, why am I not getting any of these promotions? What, what am I doing wrong? And he was told, he said, well, well, what you did wrong was back when you told your area manager that you didn't want to be put in for the promotion for those certain jobs, you know, that you were waiting for a specific job that you wanted to get. Well, this surprised my friend because he had never told his area manager that. His area manager had made up this story because he didn't want to lose my friend as an employee. And so he had lied about him so that he wouldn't get a job and that had stuck with him and it had hindered his career advancement going forward from there. You can imagine, he probably had some bitterness, some anger. I mean, this is his livelihood we're talking about here. Somebody's messing with it. But you know what he did? He forgave his boss. He forgave him. I asked him, how, how is it possible that you could forgive him and just be on good terms with him? I mean, he, 
he'd talk to them and they'd be smiling and it doesn't make a lot of sense. I asked him, he said, well, Christ Jesus forgave me. And I did far worse to him than this manager ever did to me. So if Christ Jesus can forgive me, I can forgive him. In the Gospel of John, our Lord says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In the midst of all sorts of difficulties, this may seem impossible. It may even seem that it is exceedingly more than all that we can ask or think. But brothers and sisters, I tell you by his authority and on his word, he is able. Let us pray. Lord God, we do thank you that you are indeed able. We pray that you would do a mighty work in our midst, not just today, but wherever we might go and whatever we might do, so that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name.